Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Caroline Odom. In this episode, I speak with Michelle McLaughlin, an independent photographer based in Southern Connecticut. Michelle earned her journalism degree from Boston University and has been an active participant in the National Press Photographers Association. Her work has been recognized by NPPA's Best of Photojournalism, the Associated Press Managing Editors Association, the Society of Professional Journalists, and the New England Newspaper Association. Michelle was also presented with the 2013 Professional Photographer Leadership Award by the United Nations International Photographic Council. Today, Michelle joins us to talk about shifts in technology, covering personal and traumatic events, and even offers advice on working as an independent contractor. She also shares tips on storytelling that will apply to any medium. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Additionally, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode of The Lead was recorded over Zoom. Thank you in advance for your patience with audio imperfections. Now, here's The Lead. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to The Lead Podcast. I'm so excited to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm great, Caroline. Thanks for having me. So I'm very excited about having you on the show because as I mentioned, as we were speaking a few minutes ago, it's been a while since we've had a photojournalist on the lead. So for our first question, I just want to start with what led you down the path of photojournalism? I started getting really interested in photography when I was in high school. I was studying abroad and it was one of the options that we could take and I just fell in love with it. And I went to university at Boston University thinking that I was going to be a child psychologist and met up with some people and started taking photographs again and switched my major within about six weeks and realized that psychology was not for me. And since then, I haven't looked back. Wow. What an interesting change, psychology to photojournalism. Yeah, (laughs) a little bit of a difference. I mean, it, it comes in handy for both, though, because you really have to understand people, so to do the job correctly. Oh, I'm sure. That's true of all careers, certainly, but especially for photojournalism where you're telling stories of people. So throughout your career, we've experienced some extreme changes in technology, you know, many that have taken place even in the last several years. And many of those changes have created a culture that is very visual. Have these technology changes had any impact on how you approach your work? Absolutely. I mean, when I started in photography, we were doing still all film and slides. And you were in the darkroom and you were sipping your own film and printing your own stuff. And then with the switch to digital, which was I was a few years into my career at the newspapers, and all of a sudden our deadlines were so much quicker and we were able to move images so much faster and you weren't worried about how much film you were using on an assignment. You could shoot a little bit more freely if you wanted. And it really has changed in, I mean, in every aspect, really, from not having to be in an office, not having to go back to the newsroom to move images and how fast you're getting stuff out on the wires now and into papers and on websites. There's a lot less time to kind of stop and think about your edits before you get stuff out, especially on breaking news. And also you're required to do a lot more, you know, when now we have, 
you not only just the, if you're shooting for a newspaper, you're not only shooting for the paper, you're shooting for the website, you're shooting for Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everything. So it's really added a lot more complexity, I think, in the way that you have to go about your daily work in, in good ways and in bad ways. You know, I mean, you're, there's a lot more visibility with what we're doing now, but then it is a lot more back end work at the end of a shoot. So, I mean, I love it in some ways. Some ways I miss film. I miss being in the dark room. I miss that smell of the chemicals that you just don't get that anymore. I mean, overall, it's been a really great change to see how far, how far it's come in such a short amount of time, really. You know, we're talking less than 20 years and it opens up a lot of the images to a lot more people around the world as well, which I think is an incredible aspect of how technology is moving so fast that people in far remote corners of the world can see what is happening everywhere else now. So, so it's a good thing. I like that you acknowledge both the good and maybe some of the challenges that come with it, because I think with any change, we're always going to have a little bit of both. A few minutes ago, we mentioned that you started off studying psychology. So you obviously have an interest in people. And a lot of the work featured on your website documents situations that are extremely personal for people, from photographing the aftermath of shootings in Newtown, Connecticut, to following someone's journey as they die. How do you approach these situations that are so personal where people are experiencing grief and trauma? You know, it's, it's a tough question because it really depends what you're approaching. The story that, you, that I think you're referring to about the woman, Patty, that was dying from cancer, that was a story that I was sent to with a reporter to just photograph this woman about some um, therapies that she was take, de dealing with at the time she had stage four breast cancer and walked in, headed off with this woman. And I'm like, there's a story here. So I just sat and talked to her and I came back the next day and talked to her without my cameras and ended up spending almost a year and a half with her till the last day of her life. Um, so I think, you know, in that respect, it's just gaining a person's trust and make, having them understand why their story is important and why you want to tell it. Whereas when you go something like Newtown, the shootings, I mean, that's, there is no preparation. You're out there immediately. I was out there at the school before we knew what happened. When I arrived, even my editors, we had no idea what happened. All we had heard that was one person had been killed and you just have to run and do what you can to document what's there. These are real people. These are real lives that are being affected. This is a real community being affected. And you have to step back a little bit and kind of try not to be too intrusive while you're covering this community that's now overrun with grief, overrun with the media, and just act like a human being and put yourself kind of in their position at the same time knowing that you're documenting something that is so important and going to become such a part of history in the community. It's really where your ethics kick in when you have to decide what's worth sending out. Because at the time I was working for The Wires, so I mean, you know, it's just constant send, send, send. So you really have to think about what is going out, what you're photographing, how it's being photographed, and just be careful. I think every photographer and journalist really needs to understand that there is a, a little bit of elegance and finesse to, to covering something like this. You know, you put yourself in their position of, what would I do if this were in my community? How would I react if that were my family member that was going through this? And be professional. I'm glad you brought up ethics because that's definitely a topic I want to touch on. 
I remember being in an introductory photojournalism course and there was one class where my instructor encouraged this conversation. She showed an image on the screen and she said, would you take the photo? And I just remember saying, I don't know. So when you find yourself in those situations where things are highly personal or graphic or even violent, do you have any litmus test to help you answer do I take the photo? So I was trained, and I think I agree with how I was trained, is photograph first, edit later. Because if you don't take the image, you can't go back and redo it. But I can always sit down at the computer and either myself or with my editors decide whether the image is important to run. There's images that we all see that are extremely graphic or extremely you know, heart-wrenching, and they're necessary images. But if, they, if the photographer edited themselves before they took it, these would never happen. So I think, you know, unless it's something that's going to really, really embarrass somebody, I think you photograph first. And then I think that's part of where it comes down to being so professional is you sit down and you go, okay, what image tells this story best? And is it that graphic image? Is it that image that is so shocking? Is that really the story, the image that's going to tell the story? I think that's where I would fail as a, a photojournalist is I would analyze too much and then regret later or just miss opportunities. Um, that would be my pitfall probably. But, you know, with these heavy stories, do you ever find your own emotion getting in the way? And if so, what has been your approach to handling that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really involved conversation. I'm going to say... Yes and no. For the most part, I think I've been able to put the emotion kind of to the back of my head while I'm out there photographing. You kind of realize that you're doing a job, you have to get through it, and then you go home and you start to process. You have a really good support system. You have a network that you can talk to. And it's really, really important. You know, we're seeing so much more tragedy in this, you know, wherever you're photographing, whether it's in the world or in this country, and you have to talk about it. I think for a very long time, uh, PTSD and trauma was really a taboo topic, topic in journalism, and especially in photojournalism. People felt that if they were, you know, weak and said, I can't handle this, or went to their editor and said, you know, I'm not feeling good about this, that they wouldn't get the work again. And it's finally at the point that people are talking about it and talking about mental health and how to care for ourselves because you can be out there seeing so much horrific stuff on a daily basis that you have to process it. You, you know, I know more photographers that have therapists nowadays than I ever would have thought. And that's good. I mean, that's a good thing for you to be able to talk about this stuff and, and to know your limits. You know, if you're I mean, when I was at uh, Sandy Hook, I was out there for almost a month straight every day. And my, there was a pit in the bottom of my stomach on a daily basis as I would do the drive out there. And I kind of tried to push it all off for a long time. And then I'll admit, about six weeks later, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I hadn't been processing it. I hadn't been talking to it with people enough. And finally, one of my editors pulled me aside and said, you've got to take a break. You've got to kind of deal with this. And you'll hear, you know, a lot of people I feel like are in that same position. They'll be like, I'll just push through, I'll push through. On some levels, yeah, you can do it, but you gotta eventually face it. One of the things I realized 
you know, many years ago and I felt this guilt for a long time and finally starting to shake it in like the last year where when another mass shooting would happen, whether it was Parkland or Las Vegas or, you know, I mean, we can name a million of them. You got this feeling like, oh, I wish it were me there so that another photographer didn't have to go through this experience not knowing what they're getting into, not knowing how it's going to affect them, you know, and I find that with a lot of photographers that have covered this stuff, they're like, I've already been there. I know how it's going to affect me and I'm already kind of messed up from it. So let me go. So nobody else has to go through it. That's an interesting comment about, I don't know if I've ever thought about it from that perspective of the people covering and not wanting someone else to have to experience covering that. Um, but I agree with your comments on it's good that we have this greater acknowledgement of mental health and that it's okay to have limits and to acknowledge them and to know where they are. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up, but I want to transition our conversation to talk about independent contracting, which is a very different topic, but you have a lot of experience in this field. Um, so why, why do you choose to work as an independent contractor? So I worked at newspapers at the beginning of my career loved it. I had a director of photography that was so passionate about photography and loved what we did. And he would fight tooth and nail to get us page after page after page in the newspaper to work on long-term projects. And he left the paper to take another opportunity and they didn't replace him. So it became just fill the beast, fill the pages with anything you got and no, you can't work on things. And I decided that that wasn't for me that I was going to go and do this on my own where I could work on projects. I could kind of pick and choose what I was going to do and uh, work for a variety of clients. And so I did that about 17 years ago now. Oh my Lord, I feel old. And it's amazing. Working for yourself is the best and worst thing you can ever do. You have to hustle and network like you've never networked before. Uh, you have to learn things that you never thought you would have to learn. So especially if, for the students that are still in school, like if you have time and you want to be an independent contractor, take business classes. Understand business before you come out of school because you're going to set up shop the minute you get out and you're going to have to know, how do I run a business? What's my cost of doing business? How do I do my taxes? How do I file with the state? How do I file for whatever paperwork you need? It's not as simple as just being like, oh, hey, I got a paycheck from you know this company. Great. I'll put it in the bank. Um, so it's a great way to make a living. It can also be the worst way to make a living, which a lot of myself included have discovered over the last year. When COVID hit, I know more photographers that have not worked in the last 12 months. And some of them are some of the most talented photographers in the country. And they will freely admit I have not had a job in eight months and they'll be very, very honest about that and how it's, you know, all of a sudden you realize that, oh, I also guess I needed to be a financial planner to know that I have the money in the bank to run my business for, you know, potentially 18 months without bringing in a dollar. So if you're going to do it, you have to want to do it. You have to be motivated to do it. You have to get to every conference you can get to and network with every person that you can network. That's fantastic advice, especially because you don't know what you don't know. And then, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where you need these business skills and you don't have them, 
that could be troublesome. So I'm glad you touched on that. But you mentioned you like getting to choose what you work on. So as kind of a fun question, if you had two weeks to work on anything you wanted with no restrictions on travel or resources, where would you go and what story would you want to cover? That's easy. Um, I would go back to Nepal to work on a story that I started a few years ago that I'm trying to um, get back and finish, which obviously I can't fly to there right now. I've been working on a project on how natural disasters affect the uh, disabled and differently abled communities and what the rebuilding process is and how they're included in those and uh, also like how NGOs react to working with disabled communities when they're going in, you know, especially right after a natural disaster and they're building tent cities for people to live in. You know, Nepal obviously was decimated after the earthquake and, you know, everybody from the Red Cross to you name the NGO, they ran in to help build tent cities and build all these, you know, temporary living situations, but not even one of them in the country was built where somebody in a wheelchair could get in. They might be able to get into a tent, but they could never get into a restroom. And so I've been working with some of the, um, some groups over there to kind of do a story about that and how their needs are so different after natural disasters. So I'd definitely go back to continue working on that. Well, I hope you're able to go back sooner rather than later. But as we close, I want to talk about storytelling. So to me, visual journalism is such a unique form of storytelling. And I think a I think a lot of the elements of storytelling found in visual journalism can be applied to any medium of storytelling. So when it comes to telling stories, what advice do you have for journalism students? Don't go in with preconceived notions of what you think the story is going to be. A lot of times things change so drastically when you start talking to the people that you're, that you're working with. And it may not be what you thought it was going to be, but it's going to be a much better story when you let it happen and unfold. Don't try and push a story into a box where you think it should be. And you'll find the most amazing things that can come out of it. You know, you're there to help give somebody a platform to tell their story. They know how to tell their story. They just need the way to get it out to the world. So let, let them tell their story and don't, don't make it be something that's not. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on The Lead today. I really enjoyed our conversation and look forward to you know, seeing the work that you continue to produce. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into The Lead, and thank you to Michelle for joining us. This is my last official episode as host of The Lead. Hosting the lead has been such a fun journey that I've really enjoyed as I've gotten to speak to so many interesting media leaders who are doing so many wonderful things in our industry. And before season 10 ends, I'll take the mic one last time for a bonus episode announcing our new host, so stay tuned. This episode was produced with guidance from Dr. Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute. To keep up with The Lead and to make sure you don't miss season 10's bonus episode, subscribe to The Lead on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Lead Podcast. Until next time.